We continue on in our study through Revelation, and we pick up in chapter 3, the last two letters to the seven churches. So we'll be reading from chapter 3, verse 7, through the end of the chapter, 22. I invite you to follow along, and if you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use one of the Red Pew Bibles in front of you. I will be reading from the ESV version. Again, Revelation 3, 7 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would be either cold or hot. So because of your, you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. All right, kids, you are dismissed to worship kids style. And let's pray as we turn to the word of the Lord. God and Father, I pray that you would be with us now, that you would watch over all of us as we seek to learn from and follow your word, even though we are sinful. Be with me as I seek to proclaim its truth, even though I am sinful. Be at work by your Holy Spirit, conforming us to the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
Scripture is full of these images of two paths or two ways. Maybe the most famous of those is from Jesus in Matthew 7, where he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That is a very, very famous saying of Jesus, but we also almost always misunderstand it. So let's talk about it quick. Okay, here's the issue. When people use that saying, they usually use it evangelistically. Like I remember a street preacher back when I was in college who had this giant sign behind him that said like the Broadway, and it was like the rock and roll lifestyle, right? It had all these words up there like, you know, like drugs and partying and stuff like that. Um, And that's the Broadway that leads to destruction, he's saying, and then the narrow way that, that leads to life is Christianity. Except, in Matthew 7, when Jesus says that, he's talking to a bunch of religious people. He's talking to a bunch of this, this gathering of these observant Jews. Christianity wasn't a thing yet, right? Jesus is talking to these listeners. And he's saying to them that there's two ways that you can live, which means that the Broadway almost certainly isn't the sort of worldly rock and roll lifestyle. Jesus, is in essence, is saying there's two ways you can approach Christianity. Two ways you can be the church, and one of those ways is broad and leads to destruction, and the other of those ways is narrow and harder, but that's the way that truly leads to life. And I think that same idea is in play here in Revelation chapter 7. Um, Over the last two weeks, we've been working through these letters to the seven churches. In each of them, Jesus speaks to a particular church, but he's also speaking more broadly to certain struggles or tensions that exist in the church in our world. But in these last two letters, I think he kind of ratchets it up a little bit, because these are the two, first the most positive letter of any of the seven, and then the most negative letter (laughs) of any of the seven that, that, that he writes. And I think in that, he's trying to kind of bring us to a point of recognizing the the ultimate kind of climactic contrast between these two types of churches, these two paths that we can walk on as Christians. He's trying to give a vision for the church as a whole, a vision of how to live and how not to live as the people of God. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to just take these last two churches, and we're going to take them in reverse order, just because it's easier to end on the more positive one than the more negative one. (laughs) But we're going to look at these two churches and see in them these two ways that are exemplified of following Jesus. First, the church in Laodicea. So John's final letter is to this church in Laodicea. He introduces himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, beginning of creation, and then Jesus says this. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So this is the image that Jesus is giving. And this would have been really familiar to the people in Laodicea, because here's what you need to know. So near Laodicea, there's two other cities. One is named Heropolis and one is named Colossae which is where the letter to the Colossians is written. And Heropolis is famous. It has these hot springs that supposedly have medicinal properties. And so these like hot mineral springs are there and that's the water source for the city. In ancient ancient Rome, these people were drinking. They had like running water, at least wealthy people did, um, piped into their houses. But so that's Heropolis. And then Colossae was by these like 
cold mountain lakes and had was again known for having really delicious you know icy cold drinking water that was available to them and Laodicea is in between these cities and it does not have its own source of water it actually gets water from Heropolis where the hot springs are through these aqueducts that run for like six and a half miles over to Laodicea and if you can imagine like hot mineral springs water then piped by gravity over six miles right Imagine what that's going to taste like when you drink it. That was what the drinking water was like in Laodicea. So Jesus uses that image of this like tepid, lukewarm kind of gross water as this picture of the Laodicean church, saying that it's somehow a church that lacks this distinctive, you know, strong, remarkable character that's supposed to characterize the church. Um, And we should notice that that lukewarmness is a big deal because Jesus threatens judgment. That's what he means when he threatens to spit them out of his mouth. Laodicea is one of only two churches out of these seven where Jesus, in essence, says, you need to change how you're living. You need to change what you're doing or else I am going to cast you out. You won't be a true church anymore. So what is that lukewarmness then? What is the problem at Laodicea? Well, let's keep reading. First, in verse 17, It says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Um, So Laodicea, first of all, as a city, is very prosperous in the Roman Empire and very independent of the empire as a whole, has a very, like, we've got all this money, we we can handle things ourselves, we can do it ourselves. And so apparently the church in Laodicea is sharing in that kind of prosperity and pride that they're getting from their surrounding city. And they're placing their spiritual hope in that prosperity. That's actually a common error in scripture to say, look, we're really financially blessed. We're really economically prosperous. Therefore, we must be favored by God. So for example, in Hosea chapter 12, you get the same similar language about Israel where Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. And then Hosea right after that says, but God's about to destroy you because of your sins. Something like that is what's going on in Laodicea. They're economically well off and they've concluded that therefore they must be good with God. And then of course Jesus is telling them that nothing could be further from the truth. He says they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, which is meant to be a very complete list, right? He's saying it's not just that you're a little ways off. It's not just that you're like 90% there, but there's some stuff you need to work on as a church. It's that you think you're doing great, and you are the opposite. You are in as bad a state as you can possibly be. How can that happen? Well, let's keep reading in verse 18, because I think we get part of the answer there. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So first of all, we know from historical sources that Laodicea, we said it was very prosperous and it's prosperous for three reasons. One, it's a center of banking. Two, it's a center of the textile industry in Asia Minor. And three, it had this big community of like doctors and medical remedies and was known as the center of medicine. And so that seems to directly correlate with the things that Jesus talks about here, right? Gold and white garments and a salve for the eyes to cure blindness. But what Jesus is saying is that each of those things you are most proud of actually points to something that you lack 
and you need. First of all, they need gold refined by fire, which is an image of spiritual wealth and particularly spiritual wealth bought through tribulation. Peter uses this image to describe a face that perseveres through persecution. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the church, instead of economic riches, he's saying should long for the sort of richness of faith born through tribulation, um, even though that might involve worldly suffering. Likewise, they're supposed to get from Jesus white garments. We talked about that image last week. It occurs in a couple of the letters and it represents the righteousness God provides through the saving work of Jesus Christ. So their confidence should not rest in their ability to kind of dress themselves up and appear like they're good and put together and righteous. Rather, their righteousness should rest on this righteousness from God in Jesus that he has bought from them. And likewise, the church is called to get salve to anoint their eyes. Jesus has already, in verse 17, said they are blind, and by that he probably means spiritually blind. This is kind of the root of their problem, that they think they're good. They don't even see. It's not just that the Laodicean church has issues. It's that they don't even recognize that their issues are issues. They're blind to them, and so they need insight from God to recognize them. In each of those cases, Jesus subverts the things the Laodiceans are trusting in. Their wealth, their fancy clothes, their insight and medical knowledge. Jesus is saying, those things can't get you where you need to go, spiritually speaking. Instead, you need something from me. So what are they to do? Well, Jesus gives two answers. First, he says to submit to God's discipline. In verse 19, he says, those who I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It's a quote from the book of Proverbs, and probably what he's saying is this. When you're confronted by sin, when you realize, oh, we have issues, there's always two options you have. Option one, which is the bad but more common option, is to try to cover that up and avoid, <laughs> avoid demonst- you know, like, no, that's not the case at all, trying to mask and hide your options. Um, and we want to take that path because the other path often does involve a sort of suffering and pain, but that Second option is then that we admit our sin and own it and accept its consequences. And that is the harder path, but that is, on, that is the only path that actually leads to life and our ability to change and grow. So first he's saying, enter into that with a willingness to change. And then he calls them to turn back to Jesus. This apparently is the root issue that they need to experience again, Jesus. So verse 20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now again, that's a very familiar image. Maybe you've seen that like famous painting of, you know, like Jesus with the long flowing permed hair that's knocking on the door, you know, of the, of the house. But, but again, because it's familiar, we get it wrong. Again, that tends to be used evangelistically, right? So people picture it as like, you, person out there in the world, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and knocking. That's not what it's about here. Instead, the church, remember, it meets in people's houses, and the way it tended to meet for worship is it would sit down and it would worship together, and then they'd share a meal together, and they'd live in this community, and it's picturing that happening, right? The church is meeting in a house, except that one person isn't in the meeting, right? And it's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is standing outside, knocking on the door, and wondering if the church, as it gathers for worship, is going to open the door and let him in. 
So that in some ways is an indictment of the Laodicean church, but it's also a promise of grace because Jesus says, if you will just open the door and let me come in as you gather in worship, then I will eat with you and have fellowship with you. So that is the church in Laodicea. How would we sum all of that up? I think the easiest way is to say that Laodicea is a church that trusts in the wrong things. That's the root issue that Jesus has with them. They're trusting in the wrong things. Particularly, they seem to be trusting in two things. One is their wealth, their affluence, and worldly success. And the other is their outward religion, their kind of outward righteousness that they're dressing themselves up with. And both of those are obviously huge traps for us as well. And so we should pay close attention to these warnings Jesus gives. First of all, wealth. We are by any measure an enormously wealthy church in an enormously wealthy country in the world. And here is the thing about wealth in Scripture. On the one hand, wealth in Scripture is not inherently evil. Some people fall into this trap where they think that sort of money is like the devil's thing and having anything to do with it means that you're in sin. And if we were really following Jesus, we would all like sell everything and live in caves in the desert and pray to him all day. And that's not scripture's view. Wealth itself can be a blessing of God and money is, it can be used for good or evil. But while wealth is not evil in scripture, it is always viewed as dangerous. And that it's a dangerous, particularly because it can actually keep us from knowing and trusting in Jesus. And the reason for that is that the central danger of wealth rests in the way it blinds us to our true condition. It blinds us to our true condition. Let me try to explain what I think scripture has in view when it talks about wealth. And let me try to illustrate that first with a surprising statistic. Um, First, this is not the surprising part, but young people at times abuse alcohol and drugs. That's not, I don't think, surprising to any of us. But, um, But people study this all the time because obviously there's lots of issues that can arise for that. And here's here's the interesting thing. So if, if I asked you, like, on a gut level, do you think it is rich young people or poor young people that abuse, say, like alcohol and marijuana at a higher rate? We would all intuitively think it's poor young people, but statistically it's not. Rich young people actually at a substantially higher rate than poor young people abuse alcohol and marijuana. That's not true for all other things. That would be a a bigger discussion, but but that's surprising, right? And we might, the reason it's surprising is because we have in our mind these stories of people whose lives get ruined by, by substance abuse, and many of those people are poor. So why is that? The answer is that rich young people, because their parents have a lot of resources, are able to deal with the consequences of their substance abuse, right? They're able to give the kids a second chance or bail them out financially or check them into rehab or um, even if those struggles continue, those, those young people tend to have higher income jobs and so they can kind of soak up the costs of their bad choices. But, you know, a poor young kid, right, um, they make one bad decision and there's no one there to bail them out and they don't have the resources to recover from it. And so in essence, what happens is that wealth is actually this sort of like thing that masks the reality of people's situations, right? It kind of soaks up some of the consequences of those sin and helps you from feeling the full weight of those consequences. And that is true at a kind of social level, but that's also true spiritually. Wealth actually helps us soak up some of the consequences of our sin so that we don't notice them as much. 
It lets us distract ourselves and convince ourselves that things are fine, even when they aren't. Think about, you know, I mean, even that like deep spiritual unease that people have. You get a big enough TV and big enough speakers and you go to Maui often enough on vacation and you can just kind of keep yourself distracted from those realities that, you know, you are going to die and <laughs> that your life lacks purpose. Wealth can mask that for us as individuals. And it can also mask um, our struggles as churches. I, I was thinking about that. I remember visiting a few years ago with a guy I know who was connected with this really big church that seemed really successful. It's like, you know, more than 10,000 people, and they were growing, and I remember asking him, like, man, that must be really cool. And he's like, here's the thing, Eric. Every year, our church loses more than 1,000 people. <laughs> it's just that we have all this money, and we invest basically all of it in getting new people to keep coming to the church. And that's been true for years. They, they, they were losing, like, more than 5% every year for the last 10 years of their congregation. But they managed to just keep getting new people in, and they'd be there for a few years, and they'd move on, right? Again, the resources of that church let you in the pews feel like, yeah, things are going great and we're really flourishing. But I mean, that's actually a huge problem for this church, right? And eventually they're going to run out of people to, to come visit and then that problem will start to manifest. All of that is to say, one of the main dangers of wealth for us is that it can convince us that we are in a better situation than we are. And so we need to be on guard against that. That's part of what's happening in Laodicea. Even though they have this spiritual rot and unhealth, they're prosperous outwardly, and that makes them feel good about their situation. And then the other problem is religion. Um, that's the other failing of the Laodicean church. And when, when I say religion in this case, I do not mean like true religion that is spiritual and undefiled, you know, that scripture talks about. What I mean by religion is this. Christianity is ultimately about having a living relationship with God and a heart that trusts in him and an experience of Jesus's salvation and an ongoing experience of the Holy Spirit, right? That is the heart of Christianity. Religion is what happens when you don't have that, but you do all of the stuff that surrounds that still. You still go to church, you still go through the motions, you still sort of keep at least the big commands in the Bible. You, um, you, know, you kind of go through the outward motions of Christianity, but that living relationship with God has been lost. And religion in that sense is one of the deadliest poisons to true Christian faith. Um, in scripture, it's one of the things that's most consistently warned against that, um, I mean, the, the church is more threatened by one person peddling that kind of religion than by a hundred like pagans or whatever, trying to drive people away from Jesus. And here is why that's the case. The reason for that is that what religion does is it deceives people both inside and outside the church about what Christianity is. So there are people who all they've ever known is those outward motions, right? The, the going to church and the trying to follow some rules, and they've never experienced Jesus. They've never experienced his grace and love and a relationship with him. But because they go through those outward motions, they think, oh yeah, that's Christianity. That's all there is to it, and they don't even know what they've missed. And likewise, people in the world sometimes, they'll say, well, I'm not interested in Christianity. I don't see what it has to offer me. And that's because all they experienced was that kind of, you know, going through the motions, outward thing, and they never experienced Jesus. But they're also, they don't know it, right? And in some sense, it's the church's fault for never showing that to them. Now, all of that said, just to be clear, that doesn't mean that those outward things are wrong right? If they're coming out of that heart relationship and living kind of faith with Jesus, then yeah, going to church and obeying God and doing all those outward things, I mean, that's, that's a part of Christian faith. 
But it does mean that if we don't have Jesus, then those things don't matter. And that's exactly what's going on in Laodicea. Jesus is saying, you're, you're having church, right? But I'm outside banging on the door trying to get in. So that is the first path, the broad path, the easier path. That way that seems right and seems good, but that actually leads to destruction. That's what Jesus is warning us against. And like we said, especially for people like us in a wealthy country and in a part of the country where sort of cultural religion is still very respected and accepted, we need to watch out for that. But we also need to be shown a better way. And that's where we should turn to Philadelphia. I'll just note, because Brian asked me, I, I think technically it would be pronounced Philadelphia, and I tend to pronounce these things right, but I will sound like a huge snob if I do that. So Philadelphia, let's turn to Jesus' letter to them. So first, Jesus introduces himself to them as the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And then he starts to talk about their situation. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. So first, Jesus says there's this open door he set before them, and we should talk about that. Um, when the Apostle Paul uses the image of an open door, he usually means uh, an opportunity for ministry, and that's how a lot of people read this letter, but that's probably not it, because John is writing this, and if you read, if you just skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 1, John says this. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So John is picturing that this open door that he's picturing means sort of entrance into the presence of God, entrance into the throne room of God. And that's probably what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia. He's saying, I have opened for you a way to come into the presence of God and stand before his throne and no one can shut it. And he says that he has done that despite the fact that this church has very little earthly power. We are told that their claim to praise is that they have kept Jesus' word and not denied his name, even though they lack very much earthly influence or success. So they're both privately believing and seeking to follow Jesus and publicly bearing witness to him, even in their weakness. And then the outcome of that open door, there's really two of them. First, in verse 9, Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and not but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. All right, now this, if you were here with us last week, this is the second time that, that he's used this language. But um, what was happening just by review in the Roman Empire, you were legally required to worship the emperor and to worship the gods, except that there was this special exception that was given to Jewish people um, that had happened because of some historical reasons. They were allowed, they, they could pray for the emperor rather than to him. They were kind of legally allowed not to participate in this idol worship. And early on, Christianity was kind of protected by these same laws um, because they were considered a sect of Judaism. But what was happening around this time as the gulf between those groups was increasing is that certain leaders within the synagogue were going to some of the Roman governors of these cities and saying, actually, you know, these Christians, they're not Jews. Like, they shouldn't have this legal exception. And so as a consequence, now these Christians were facing, like, legal consequences for their refusal to worship idols. And so that seems to be what is going on here in Philadelphia. They're facing persecution now. 
And in the face of that, Jesus promises that these people who have opposed them will ultimately come to the church and acknowledge that they are from God. He intentionally echoes the language of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, where he says, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And the important thing about that promise in Isaiah and this promise to this church in Revelation is to recognize that both of those promises are ultimately about what happens when Jesus returns, which is to say Jesus is not promising this church that tomorrow, you know, all their enemies are going to come and bow down to them and recognize it. But part of the idea of the final judgment in Scripture is actually that it's a final vindication, that those who are faithful and suffer and face persecution for it will in that moment find vindication as it's publicly shown that they've been faithful. So that's part of the promise of final vindication. And then in verse 10, Jesus also says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So the church is promised that as they have patiently endured in the face of hardship and persecution, so Jesus will protect and sustain them. He says, when he says he's going to keep them from the trial, that probably doesn't mean that they won't suffer at all, but it means that he'll protect and preserve them so that the trial doesn't overcome them. And then that's joined with a final promise of Christ's return in verse 11, where he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And then a promise of final blessing in verse 12, where he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. There's a lot of blessings there. But first, that they're a pillar, which is an image of strength. But more than that, a pillar in the temple of God, in the inner sanctuary of God's presence. So it's an image of them being strong and enduring in the presence of God himself. And then they get to bear the name of the Lord, the name of the new Jerusalem, which is Revelation 21, but it's, we'll get there. It's the true church is actually what that kind of picture is, and the name of Jesus himself. So that is Philadelphia. That's the kind of church that we should aspire to be and hope to be. How do we do that? I think there's three ways that we can see Philadelphia as being exemplary. Three things we should learn from them. First, They are a church that trusts in Christ's supernatural strength. They do not have much earthly power, but instead they have put their trust in what Jesus can do. That's actually one of the contrasts, right? The church in Laodicea trusts in its wealth. This church in Philadelphia is trusting in Jesus to open the door. One of the things that being in ministry makes you really realize is that there are things you can do and that there's a lot of things you can't do by, by your own power or gifting. Um, which doesn't mean, I mean, we do have strengths and we should use them and God works through our strengths. So don't, don't, don't hear me saying that. But, but look, man, there are, there are times that you, that like I will preach a sermon and I will have a conversation with someone the next day about it and that they will have gotten the opposite thing from the sermon of what I said. Like, I mean, there, there are moments, I mean, I remember early on in ministry, there's this moment where, um, you know, where I preached a sermon 
that, that was this very, like, fiery, like, um, like, look, like, it, God does not care if you're a good person, you are saved by grace alone, right, and your, your discipline and morality, like, that doesn't save you, it's all up to Jesus and his grace, and, like, after that service, I had a conversation with somebody where they were just like, yeah, I know that God saves me because I'm a good person, <laughs> and, and the thing is, it's not exactly their fault, and I don't think it's my fault, although maybe I'm not being clear, but, but really mostly what's happening in that moment is that like, you recognize that for, for a human heart to change, that takes a work of God, right? To, to, to change someone's heart and open it so that they can hear that. Our effort cannot change hearts. Our efforts cannot build up the kingdom. Our efforts cannot create that kind of lasting transformation in the world unless God moves by his strength. And that should do two things for us. One, that should make us prayerful because we recognize that it is ultimately God who has to move. And so we should, in everything we do, be lifting it up to God in prayer and asking him to work. And secondly, that should make us hopeful, which might seem counterintuitive. But the good news of that is that the opposite is also true. While my strength in itself cannot build up the kingdom, my weakness also cannot undermine it. That this church in Philadelphia is weak in itself. It doesn't have much power, but God's strength is nonetheless at work in it. That's why Jesus says in verse 8, I know that um, your works, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut, and I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And therefore, Jesus says, I am going to work. Coming out of that, the church in Philadelphia also hopes in Jesus' future return. The second thing that sets them apart is that they're hoping in Jesus' future return as their ultimate source of vindication, not something in this age. There's this idea that Christianity is a religion that is too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good, that it's the sort of opiate that keeps people docile in the face of present suffering just because it promises them a pie in the sky in the future. And there, that, is, there, that is not true in one sense. There's lots of issues with that idea. One of the issues is that Christianity very much cares about this world and how we live as Christians in this world and are calling to be on God's mission in this world and show mercy and seek justice and bless our neighbors and all of that. And another issue with that is that heaven, as scripture pictures it, is this world restored, right? It's not some pie in the sky that we fly off to. But the truth is that there is a sense in which Christianity is a faith that requires the world to come in order to work. It promises that there is a coming future, coming with Jesus, that is so glorious and good that it repays us for the tribulation and pain that we suffer in this age. Just speaking generally, we need that kind of future hope because any other way of living, any alternative system results in tyranny and evil. The church has committed terrible evils in its history when it stops trusting that God will protect and vindicate us someday and instead says, we're going to try to vindicate ourselves now in the present. Um, both Christians and non-Christians have committed terrible evils when they say, we're going we're gonna to create heaven now. We're going to use human power and human force to try to create heaven and earth right now. In this age... All good is intermixed with evil, and all justice is imperfect, 
and suffering is guaranteed to human beings. When we try to live in denial of that fact, we tend to actually make things worse. But part of what enables Christians to live in such a world and what enables this church in Philadelphia to be faithful is that it rightly understands what things can be true of this age and what things have to wait for the age to come. It faithfully perseveres facing poverty and tribulation because it knows that there is that open door set before them and that on the far side of it, when God's kingdom comes to earth as it is in heaven and Jesus Christ returns, there will be blessing and vindication and wholeness and life. We need to set our hope ultimately in that reality. And then tied to that is the last feature of the Philadelphian church, which is that they long to experience God's presence. Their goal above anything else is to know the presence of God. That's maybe the biggest contrast between these churches. Remember, verse 20, that I stand at the door and knock, and are you going to let me in (laughs) to your worship service? That's what Jesus says to the Laodiceans, to the Philadelphians instead. Here's his promise. He says that I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and never will you go out of it. And I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. The hope Jesus ultimately holds out for them and the hope that they are trusting in is an experience of his presence and love. That is what Christianity is ultimately about, experiencing the presence of God. I mean, that, that's why we do this every week, right? If, if You don't come to church just to like have a good experience of community or be a good person. I mean, if if that's why you're here, I'm glad you're here and let's talk about Jesus. But like the reason we sing these songs to God is because we need our hearts to be lifted up and shaped um, in in a recognition of God's greatness and and joy about his love for us. And the reason we pray is because God is here with us listening to us. And when two or three are gathered together, God is with them. And the reason that we hear from God's word is because it's God's words and we're expecting to hear from him as he speaks to us. When we come to the table, as we're going to in a minute, it's because we're hoping to know and experience the presence of Jesus Christ. So as we prepare for that table, that's the reality that I would leave us with, that I want us to dwell upon, that our ultimate hope needs to be in meeting with God. This is a place as we gather together where Jesus strengthens us. The church is meant to be a community that God dwells in the midst of. And as we come together, this is our time to reflect and hope on that fact, to know and experience God's presence made known to us through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God and Father, I pray that you would form us to be a church that walks the narrow path, places its hope in your presence, in your future coming, and that walks in joy and hope in the life of Jesus. Pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.